the first time I saw this movie, Psycho, was we rented it from this place called Blockbuster. I don't know if... Oh, God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because my, my grandmother would not stop talking about this movie that terrified her in her youth, and she wouldn't shower for two months afterwards. Well, I've heard this from so many old people that they wouldn't I, shower. Well, yeah. so, here, so here's the interesting thing. We go back and rewatch it, and my grandmother is sitting in the room, and we watch through it, and she goes, it wasn't as scary as I remember it. But I think a lot of that has to come with these sort of genre constructs we're talking about because the scary part was lead actress who had already repented for her previous crimes gets killed by secondary character we've never seen on screen before and that's not supposed to happen in movies so once you take away the rules it just rips the rug out from under people they told me that the classics never got a style but they do we never actually see the knife touch Janet Lee's flesh. A showerhead, her face, the water, the drain, a shadow, her hand, her scream, the curtain. The fast montage technique wasn't exactly new, but in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock convinced mainstream America that they had witnessed a murder. In 1931, Fritz Lang did something slower, a ball abandoned, a whistled tune, a balloon caught in the telephone wires. In 1926, Dmitry Kursunov had derived the technique from the Soviet formalists and the French surrealists, producing a frantic, dizzying effect bookending his most important film. One axe swings through the air, another leans against a building. We reach for it with our eyes. Film is a series of jagged cuts, scissors to celluloid, bladed weapons to the human body, bows ripping across the strings of violins. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. I'm your host, Frank Fuchile, and tonight, in addition to research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homley, I'm joined by special guest Matthew S. Wise, poet and author of the collection Everything Is Ed Wood. discussing Fritz Lang's M, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and in passing, Dmitry Kursunov's Minio Montan, and Ari Aster's Hereditary. We'll be thinking about the history of the horror genre, psychological approaches to nasty characters, manipulations of the audience's expectations, and, as always, Fascism.
what are the sort of aspects of these two movies that you think are most important or that you most want to talk about? I think when you're looking at movies like M and Psycho, you're playing with a lot of different ideas and the things that make each of them effective in their own right, because you need a certain scariness or an effectiveness, an emotional invocation of sorts, right? And I think one of the things that they both do that make them stand out, that make them, I mean, if you've seen a lot of these films, that make them not only just watchable, but uh, really enjoyable and still have them bring something to the table is the way they play with uh, sort of genre constructs and the way they um, change your idea of who the monster is or what are you actually afraid of. And a lot of that trickles down from societal elements. But in these two, it gives you a very tangible person to put those elements onto. So if you're going to line these two up, I think that's a, not a bad place to start. The idea of the sympathetic child killer and the very charming misogynistic serial killer. <laughs> yeah. You know, sort of spinning the, uh, the tropes on their head a little bit and really just freaking the hell out of people while doing it. Well, and what we see is the tropes are being built as they're being changed. And as our idea of what a monster is shifts. That also, to my mind, shifts the genre. What we consider to be a horror movie or what we consider to be a mystery or what we consider to be a noir. And all of those boundaries are very permeable, but in playing with the audience's expectation of who the villain is, not only are we messing with tropes and yeah, like turning our expectations on their heads, we're actually seeing shifts between specific genres. So I think that there are probably a lot of people who would peg M as perhaps the very beginning of film noir, though it's also worth noting mm -hmm. that people in America don't start using that term until almost the 70s. And in France, they're not using that term until the 40s, but even then it's probably only in small circles. But sort of an idea of a different kind of a movie that grows out of German Expressionist cinema and also out of, obviously, procedural approach to crime fiction. And yeah, I think procedural is a good word there. Yeah, yeah. Um, because a lot of it, let's not forget, Psycho starts out as a bank robbery movie. Exactly. Quite literally. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, then, and then most noirs, it involves some sort of heist or some sort of crime. Like we think of it as crime fiction overall, when really when we say noir, we're really just talking about a certain play of light and shadow, a certain, you know, it's almost a visual concept right, more right. than thematic, although it tends to play itself out. You know, it's, it's a big heist. It's a big, you know, gangster movie or, you know, yeah. something like that. And Psycho turns out, honestly, both of them uh, are good early examples of, if we want to talk deeper into horror lore, the idea that the cops are not people to be trusted. Ultimately, right. they can't handle the situation. A lot of that uh, starts back with these. Which and is that, is, very, that is yeah, core to the sort of concept of noir, that the, the whole world is so corrupt that what do you think that the cops would be able to do a anyway? Right. At, at best, <laughs> yeah. they'll just come up and beat the shit out of you. You know. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to it later. Yeah, they're very fatalistic. It's very like, no one yeah. can save you. This is already happening. Maybe the criminals are the good guys. <laughs> or, maybe, know, maybe they or, could, or more, more, uh, or, more or, likely there are no good, good guys, more, right? Yeah, yeah more, more apt to handle the situation, more <laughs> organized. I think that it's certainly. interesting that in M we do get some criminal good guys, and that is a bit different. And it also, I think, might show a little bit of Fritz Lang's I don't know, I want to say like willing naivete. We see that in Metropolis too. Mm -hmm.
I really liked M. I'm just going to put that out there. I really liked it, like facial expressions, just the film style of how they shot it. You see it as a transitional movie from silent into sound. That A lot of that facial acting is very taken from silent yeah. movies. Oh, yeah. Peter like, Lorre, his face yeah. is insane. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It was just intriguing to me because he had kind of like a little bit of a baby face. So it was like... Yeah, right. Yeah. Even creepier. Very, very well casted. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because like this baby face, almost baby faced guy is preying on children. Like, okay. It was refreshing. I really, I really like it. I like the bridge between silent and moving into what we know as film today. I know, Sound I movies, talkies as they used to call them. Anything where there's an organ playing in the background, you gotta love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we all knew what was gonna happen in the end. Like the dude was gonna get caught and the gang was gonna get him. Like we all knew that. Uh-huh. Um, but still I was excited to see what's next and it wasn't like, Oh, I know what's going to come next. And yeah, when we watched a lot of those silent films, it did feel like we we knew exactly what was going to happen in most of them. And I think that a lot of that's because those genre tropes have been played out so much that like the standard yeah. silent film plot is just what we know as the standard film plot. And then I think what you see in that turn to noir in the 30s and 40s and even into the 50s is a sort of awareness that like, well, these characters are fucked. And the joy of watching the movie is just like, in what ways and through what routes are they fucked you know that's like sort of classic tragedy in that sense that you know where it's going but it's just a question of the contours of how we get there once again it's it's impossible to overstate how charming norman bates is right well if you look at that original trailer i don't know if you got the chance to see it i have, I have one of these random box sets someplace that had the original yeah. trailer for psycho on it and it's quite literally hitchcock walking around the set of the hotel and the house just going it's about three minutes long it's longer than any trailer you'd see nowadays just explaining here's the site of a grisly murder <laughs> Yeah. We won't talk about that, though. Oh, here's a staircase. Something horrible happens here. We won't talk about that, though. Nowadays, it feels like he'd be explaining every last detail. and like, how can you even watch the film afterwards? But looking back on it, he doesn't actually explain anything. And critics at the time were sworn to secrecy about the Jeanette Lee twist. And if you were late to the movie, this wasn't just some Alamo Drafthouse bullshit. If you were more than five minutes late to the movie, they locked you out. Yeah. So you couldn't just see a piece of it. And that was a big deal in the day. We've talked a little bit about viewing cultures where this is the turn towards what we would think of as the more typical viewing culture where you're <laughs> intended alert. to watch the movie from beginning to end. And in the old days, people would pop in and out all the time, and that was more common. Yeah, I read a little bit about that. It seems kind of whack, I guess, but if you're a big director like that, I guess you can get to the point in your art where you can do whatever you want. And then listening to the Behind the Bastards episodes, there's obviously the positive and the negative to that, you know? Yeah, we don't necessarily have to excuse people for everything they ever did in their life, but we can say that, you know, if you're a big deal, you use that in some cases to do a major artistic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's not like he made them watch Vertigo on the top of a tower or anything. It's, uh, <laughs> oh but I, I, I just love that everyone was like, yeah, this is worth it. We're all subscribing to this. Like, yeah. they realized this was a big moment and this is the only way this works. And this is not to get too much into, I guess, the creation or the idea of even having an auteur theory. Like, Hitchcock was the guy. Everyone loved him. So he right. was going to take advantage of it. And looking back, yeah, it's obnoxious, but damn, did it work, you know? 
<laughs> we're right. still sitting here talking about this movie. My grandmother still has not showered. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how true that actually was because I've heard so many people say that story. It's one of those ones where I wonder, like, was it an actual thing or is it just like enough people said it that it became a thing that you said? I Hers was very specific. Hers was like, I saw it and then there was a week and then I went to summer camp and then I came back and I still had showered. Oh. <laughs> That's a good summer camp excuse though yeah. too. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? Haven't you seen Psycho? Get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to end up wrapped in clear plastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Come on, man. This is also one of the first things where we've seen them cleaning up after a murder, right? Like, mm-hmm. now it's commonplace. Now everything's Forensic countermeasures. Now. Yeah, but he's mm-hmm. literally, there's like a little procedural scene of him, like, cleaning the bathroom and wrapping her in the plastic, and he's got to get rid of it in the swamp, and since there's no DNA, doesn't that just sound easy and quaint? Don't you think he would have realized if there were wads of cash in the newspaper when he was cleaning up? Like, <laughs> I have had that thought. Like, <laughs> no, I like that. I mean, I think the first off, it does play well in my mind that it's like, well, it's just a folded up newspaper and you can throw away all kinds of stuff in a folded up newspaper. But also you're supposed to interpret it later on once you know a little bit more about him as, well, he's sort of in a trance. He's sort of just, he realizes that something horrible has happened. He doesn't quite understand that he was the one who did it he understands though that he needs to clean up and so he goes through these motions he's done it an unknown number of other times and so it doesn't seem odd to me and the way that he does it is really great in terms of how Hitchcock sets it up to completely de-emphasize the money that he's almost cleaned the whole room and then he looks back and he sees the newspaper on the table and he's like oh yeah and he throws it in the trunk yeah so it seems plausible to me that he wouldn't notice, but you know, in terms of just the artistry of the film itself, it's great in that it completely de-emphasizes the monetary motive. Absolutely, that's yeah. the, that's the switch from it being a bank robbery movie to yeah, like the money never mattered, nothing well, mattered at all. It takes it out of being a commentary on structures of authority under capitalism, which it very definitely is for the first forty minutes into something that's more confusing and ultimately about the sort of deeper problems that people have within their soul. I was actually uh, re-watching it today. I noticed a bit. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Frank, because it's an authoritarian sort of take on it. But there's this weird thing that happens where when the big Texan comes in and he's buying his house for his daughter, there's already sort of a patriarchal element oh, very there. Much, yeah. The two secretaries, uh, you know, <laughs> Janet Lee and you know, the other woman out there. Who is Hitchcock's care. daughter. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, I did not know that. That probably explains why his cameo's out the bank window then. Because he was probably there on set with his daughter. There's a weird thing that happens where he walks in and he tells the girls... It's really hot in here. You should tell your boss to get some air conditioning. And then the boss immediately goes, why don't you come back into my office? I've got air conditioning. And then when she shows up to the hotel and it's cold and rainy, Norman Bates goes, your room's probably cold. Why don't you come into my office when it's warm to eat dinner? Uh It's like a weird temperature control as authoritarian, (laughs) like, it was an odd coincidence. Like, I I you know, everything's on purpose. Oh, everything is definitely on purpose because Hitchcock's a genius. 
<laughs> but it's um, very specifically kind of juxtaposed, right? She oh, just yeah, wherever sure. she goes, it's based on temperature and who can control it, right? Like it's yeah, absolutely control of her. Yeah, I definitely did notice the bit, and I have in in screenings past noticed the bit with oh yeah, why don't you get some air conditioning up in here? And it's like oh, it turns out it is air conditioned, but only for the boss. I have noticed that before, especially the fact that it's Phoenix. It's not oh, a yeah, small matter. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. a small matter in Phoenix, Arizona. Though I had not noticed the bit about it being warmer in the creepy taxidermy lunch eating room. Right. Oh, God. Um, oh, God. I don't really want to call it an office. <laughs> you eat like a bird. No, it's yeah. like... You eat a lot. Yeah. yeah, I know. I love how it's it's such a cute comment, but then it's suddenly like, no, that means you eat a lot. Like it's like it's he, so he, goes, he, he creeps yeah. it up so perfectly. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and almost and almost the taxidermy had to be in there for the creep factor. You know, yeah. how else could they have done it? Really, it should have. There should have been more taxidermied animals. That would have made it. Well, I, I love his obsession with birds, though, because of course it's Marion Crane, right? Uh, you know. Crane, of course. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. even like stuffing other animals. That would just look horrible and crazy, you know, like, I don't know, your mother. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that for Hitchcock, who's British, Bird as a slang term for woman would be very obvious in his head and probably not in ours. Is it in The Man Who Knew Too Much? I want to say the second Man Who Knew Too Much, obviously the color one with Jimmy Stewart and Kesara Sara, that they have a whole bit where they go to a taxidermist's office and it's like played off for comedy. I think that this is something that like Hitchcock had been dying to put into a movie and make creepy and he had not done it successfully in the past. Right after it was the birds. Yeah, his bird obsession continues. Yes. Uh, yeah. In 1963, Tibby Hedren meets yes. an attorney, Mitch Brenner. It takes place in a pet store in San Francisco. He's still working his way further out west, too. Yes. And also, it's kind of interesting. You can see him working his way across America with these. You know, the birds is sort of a landmark. And I would say that Hitchcock sort of invents two different genres of horror here with Psycho on the one hand, and then a couple of years later, the birds. And it's really interesting because you see in each of those, like, very specific subgenres spin out the sort of psychological serial killer film on the one hand and this sort of I don't know what you want to call it I think I used to call it locked door movie like, like, like on the one hand horror. Jurassic Park and on the other hand everything with zombies mm. it actually um the birds falls nicely into a genre that becomes ironically not very popular till sort of the late 70s more a lot in the 80s the idea of lots of small terrifying things as opposed to one big terrifying thing you're right. atta being attacked by say a whole bunch of critters or uh, ghoulies or mm. lots of little tiny things are coming to get you as opposed to yeah say in the 40s or 50s where it was a lot more you know yeah there's a giant ant or a 500 foot woman coming for you or you know whatever thing they blew up that week in the B movie but yeah, he kind of starts that with the birds. But also, yeah, you're right. It is kind of a cabin in the woods survival horror. They literally have to lock the doors and they're at the mercy of, you know, they either survive or they don't, you know. And it's worth mentioning also that in both of these cases, we have the film genres lagging behind, but also popularizing and developing the ideas in literary fiction or even just in popular fiction. Just, I mean, uh, just depending on where you want to draw that line. Daphne du Maurier writes the story. 
story of the birds in, uh, I want to say, 53. And it takes place in Cornwall in England. And she also wrote Rebecca and a whole bunch of other books that had become like huge blockbuster movies. So it, it was obvious that Hitchcock would pull from her for uh, something like The Birds. And uh, Psycho was by, was it Block? But basically, the original material for Psycho is the the Ed Gain killings that ends up feeding into like a million other horror franchises, everything from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Silence of the Lambs. Well, and even um, to bring it back to M, that was based off of a real string of killings. The guy was known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Not to get overhyped, but that's a damn cool nickname. That is uh, a cool nickname. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Uh, and then the characters, uh, the, uh, Peter Lorre's character sort of spun out of that because it was uh, much like it's portrayed in the film. And I guess in the American version, it would you know, be similar to like a Summer of Sam kind of thing. There was like an actual sort of panic and whatnot. The point is that Psycho and, you know, in a certain sense, M is the precursor, but definitely after Psycho, we have this much stronger fascination with the killer more generally, and then more specifically the serial killer. And in both of these, we see in different ways, the sort of sexual serial killer in particular as a fascination of pop culture. Yeah, but also like Dahmer and... Bundy. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, so the, our fascination with those kinds of stories starts from this whole trajectory. And we can put it most broadly under the crime movie genre, right? Whether we want to talk about it, like serial killer movies specifically, or whether we want to talk about the sort of whole noir diaspora as it develops in different ways. But it is a notable shift and maybe something that we can see certain precursors of in some of those 1920s movies, but it is a notable shift away from the mystery or away from the detective story, where it's all based on a plot line of who is the killer, to then flip it around and say, well, you know who the killer is. You're just trying to figure out, well, what are the nuances of how this is going to shake out, right? And you're much more interested in like, well, how and why is usually he doing what he's doing and the police procedural stuff is interesting and is often though not always in there too but it's not the sole focus and there's no longer that assumption as you have in the traditional mystery genre that part of the fun for the audience is to try and figure out who it is right right it's no longer a who done it it's uh we know who done it and we think they're kind of charming we're kind of on their side we kind of want to see what they're doing you know, it's it's more about a how done it and an if they'll get away with it this is where you, you know, ultimately leads down the line to like say a Dexter or, you know, something like that. Well, I do I do think Dexter is different though, because by the time we get to something like Dexter, we are getting into out and out identification with and sympathy for at least one type of killer, though there are other killers that are beyond the pale and that are clearly villains. That is fair. Types of killers are still important. And it's different in a movie like M or a movie like Psycho, where there is a noteworthy recognition that there is something wrong with this person. There's a noteworthy recognition that 
that this person is doing horrible things, but may or may not be entirely responsible for his actions. And I think that part of this is just a story of psychology finding its way into the mainstream. And that obviously leaves the door open to later versions of this story where we sympathize or in a certain sense root for the killer. But it's also worth noting that we're not really there yet. I mean, we still do want something to happen to stop it. We do still want the criminal to be brought to justice, though there are still a lot of questions open about what that means and whether that's even worth it ultimately. Like that very last scene of M that I find so enormously powerful and like really way ahead of its time where Lang doesn't even reveal what the verdict is. And then all we see is Elsie Beckman's mother saying, you know, this doesn't change anything. We're not going to get our children back. Like, we don't, ha- we don't have any idea even whether he was found guilty or innocent yeah. or whether they sent him to an asylum or what, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, and the, and the, the speech he gives, the, this idea that I was born this way and I can't help it. You think I like this? You know, yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, the sympathetic. Uh, and then when you put this next to Psycho, it's really the nature versus nurture argument, right? Like right, it, yeah. Pretty much on its face. Like it's, this guy was born a child killer in M. Well, they say child killer, but right, we're all assuming pedophilia and whatnot here, right? There yeah. is, so I think, if, throughout it, the assumption that it is a sexual thing, yeah. Right. So, and he's going, I can't help myself. This is, you know, it's a sinister urge, right? But Norman, we we get the idea that he probably would have been a perfectly normal boy if his mother wasn't. I don't know if we can go into Bates Motel as uh, canon, and I I will not start that argument here because (laughs) – but in theory, on its face, movie versus movie, I would say one is telling you he's born this way and he can't help it, and the other was like, he can't help it. He was born into this situation where he never, you know, and neither of them had a chance in the first place, and nor did anyone who came across them, apparently. I think that this is sort of an interesting way that film, because if done correctly, it's so short and leaves so much to the imagination film has the opportunity to again leave these doors open in the bit in psycho where the sheriff and his wife are explaining the backstory yeah it's just mentioned now norman was already a seriously disturbed child right and then we get the story of him killing his mother and her boyfriend so it completely elides the question of whether he was already a homicidal maniac or or whether this is what drove him to that point to what degree it got worse to what degree it changed so we are given a lot of play in our heads to wonder like well what was it and then you get i think not until the 80s psycho 2 and there's a psycho i have seen psycho 2 i don't know what qualifies as canon anymore though and then we have bates motel and stuff like that but the point is that these questions are open and other directors and other actors get to try and figure that out Mm -hmm. oh no it's very true and uh i was gonna say because the tv series if you know it's all about his youth it has a very definitive answer especially for they reference that right there spoiler but he's trying to kill him and his mom at the same time because he's so in love with her but the right. she dies but he doesn't <laughs> and then that's what 
spawns all of this, which, you know, it all tracks, but I kind of like the one, once again, one of the reasons why the movie is so effective is it leaves these questions out in the open, you know, and depending on, especially, man, to be a parent in the 60s watching this, trying to figure out, (laughs) is it the mom's fault or is this just the best son ever? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also just watching it straightforward. You don't, I, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the mom's sort of a secondary character who never, you know, when she comes in and kills two people, we still think it's the mom in theory, right? Like well, we should, un- if we haven't had it spoiled. Yeah, yet. Un- yeah. <laughs> Unfor- unfortunately, watching it nowadays, there's no way you can escape knowing who Norman Bates is or you know what have you. But yeah, in theory, watching it back then, you were like, oh, the mom only pops out of this room to kill people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, maybe is- maybe oh. she is crazy. <laughs> What does it mean for relationships? What does it mean for the culture in the 60s? And then what does it mean for both of those things moving forward? You know? Do you have answers in mind? No, of course not. Well, let's do a little thought experiment and like consider the totally normal teenage couple in 1960 who, you know, after being aware of... Yeah, being aware of... Parking. Parking. <laughs> Not getting to that yet. Not getting to that yet, Matt. I saw Back to the Future too. Yeah, I heard. We're Back one out. Ha- we're one hour into the date. We're not parking yet, Matt. <laughs> we're not parking. <laughs> not with that attitude. <laughs> I'm a nice girl. But imagine your typical whatever 1960 teenage couple who have some awareness of Hitchcock and thinking about traditional suspense thrillers like say the man who knew too much have only ever seen a fully code movie have only ever seen a movie that fully conformed to the Hayes code couples sleep in twin beds no nudity anyone who does anything bad doesn't get to get away with it and noir had all kinds of clever ways of working around this. But if you're a teenager in 1960, that means that you spent most of your life in the 50s, right? So you have a pretty white bread existence, so to speak, right? So imagine something out of, I don't know, fucking Greece or back to the future, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And this couple goes in and sees this movie. They show up on time. And in two out of the first three scenes, we get Janet Lee in her bra and only a bra. We immediately have, you know, a scene in a cheap hotel, an illicit affair. And yeah, she feels bad about it, but she's like being cast immediately as the... Even though she fights movie. against it, she makes a, she makes a point to fight against it. She, well, she, she has to. That's, the, try, that's sort of Hitchcock's nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Hitchcock's nod to, it's okay for you to sympathize with this person because Absolutely. she at least knows that she's supposed to feel bad about yeah. it. Yeah, and she steals the money out of love, you know, trying to get her life right to help so, her... In- so for your average viewer, the person that you're sympathizing with that would traditionally be a quote-unquote villain or a quote-unquote bad person or whatever is Marion Crane. Norman Bates don't even enter into the picture. 
And so there's so much that goes on in terms of what we might call relativizing morals or questioning what the definition of normal versus abnormal is, what moral versus immoral behavior is, what counts as deviance. There's so much of that that goes on in just the first few scenes before we even get to what ends up being the real plot of the movie where we get to see like, oh, oh, yes, okay. So now I can see that what she was doing was well within the bounds of normal and not hurting anybody at all because I've seen, on the other hand, what looks really weird and wrong. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm glad you mentioned the Hayes Code earlier. It's 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 kind of a direct shot at that. You know? Oh, absolutely, it, absolutely. This is the film they, that breaks the Hayes Code. Yeah, yeah, very purposefully. Yeah, this uh, is the film that breaks the Hayes Code because, you know, again, Hitchcock could do whatever he wanted, for better or worse. So then imagine, well... <laughs> going through this harrowing experience that basically throws into question the whole concept of the nuclear family and like right. in almost a Freudian right. sense says like here are your perversions yeah. uh, do not bring up Freud <laughs> okay sorry Anna sorry we don't have here's, to talk about Freud here's a divorcee here's right. this here's that you we know, don't have to talk things. about Freud we don't have to talk about Freud Good. but after this what is going to happen with that couple <laughs> As they go to park their car, I mean, this is kind of an odd yeah. moment for them, I think. <laughs> as long as it's not near a swamp, they're they're probably okay. But yeah, no, and then he does all that, and the, the miracle is he breaks every... Well, yeah, and I say miracle, and I kind of mean it, because every movie that works is a miracle, right? <laughs> but this works it's so well. Nothing, yeah. yeah, like this works so well, he breaks every single rule but does it in perfect three-act structure. (laughs) Literally, the first chunk is the bank robbery, and that's our introduction, and then she dies. And then now we've got the plot, right? We've been introduced to what the plot actually is, and that's Norman and all this. But then the cop dies, and then that's the start of the resolution. And then that's when the boyfriend and the sister come in. So it's literal ABC plotting, but he blows the lid off of the idea of what a movie's supposed to be. Right. And by cop, a, cop dying, you mean the investigator? Uh, I'm sorry, that's right. He's very specifically a private investigator. Private investigator. Not, that's that nod to noir. It's important that he's a private yes, investigator and absolutely. not a cop. Yeah, Yeah, because that comes up frequently because he asks about warrants a lot of times. Yeah. It's funny. He says things to Norman like, I would need a warrant for that, wouldn't I? And Norman's like, uh, yeah, I guess. He's like, that's okay, I'm not a cop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. going to break into your house eventually yeah. anyway, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, film buffs would be pretty primed for that after going through a solid two decades of like, yeah, this is what private eyes do is they eventually, if they can't get what they want, they just fucking break in. So. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the genre cycle, isn't it, right? It's new, it's innovative, it becomes such a thing that we call it a genre, and then at some point someone needs to break it. You know, this is where you get your scream, this is where you get your hereditary 20 years after scream, you know. I'd watched Psycho for the first time after watching Scream, and then uh, sort of that sort of hipping me to, oh, of course, I, I'm a teenager, I should probably be watching horror movies, and so this is where I'm going to start. And so with my MTV sensibilities of you nineties, <laughs> like was very Say unimpressed, was very, very unimpressed by uh, psycho. And it wasn't until I gained a little bit more knowledge of film that I could appreciate exactly what was going on there.
Anna, Rachel, what are your thoughts about these in terms of your own just reception? Is this the first time you'd seen Psycho before? Yeah. Second. Second time. I was under the impression that you had some knowledge of it already. But does it work? Did it work or what? I think it was great. Yeah, I think it worked really well. I don't know. For me, if I had to rank these films, I would put Hereditary at the top, which is so unfortunate because I have so much to say about Hereditary. M for me is second, and then, uh, I don't know, maybe they're tied for a second. But I thought in terms of developing the genre, maybe M works better. And yeah, you can make the argument that it was earlier, but maybe in the way that it's put together as a whole, I thought that it was more useful. What did you find most interesting about M? I think I... Watching it, I was a little surprised about how these, I guess, this crime organization takes on the role of kind of the enforcer. I thought that was a really interesting part, how they made a play on authority there. And I thought they did it really well. Yeah. Um, And that's sort of a bit of that noir sensibility that Matt and I were talking about, right? Where it's like, well, the cops aren't going to do shit. So you have your private investigator. And so Fritz Lang, again, obviously ahead of his time, sort of like jumps the gun all the way to the logical conclusion, which is that like, well, if you have an overreaching state apparatus, what if you had like a fully developed criminal apparatus as like a sort of shadow state? At some point, we just have to get shit done and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Being out here on the East Coast, it still plays out like that in, in real life. This is going to sound whatever, but this is very true. My wife is from the Bronx, and she grew up in an area that wasn't the greatest, but there was a lot of gangs, and they ran stuff. And it wasn't just like the drugs and the this and the that and all the stuff you would think. They actually did more enforcement than the actual police. And one of the problems Philadelphia has with crime is the fact that we don't have a gang population because you know right. can't trust the cops to handle anything and if you know if you're going block by block block by block if there was a you know a bloods or a crips or a whoever out here they would be enforcing stuff not the you'd, police you'd at the very least so now, know who you have to get together to solve a problem exactly rather yeah. than just random two people on each corner defending each little you know spot for their livelihood you know the organized part of organized crime is really important and i think m yeah like you said fritz jumps to the end of it it's like well this is the inevitable (laughs) response right and it's it's extraordinarily german it's like a parody of germanness the most organized organized crime yeah the most organized crime the most efficient court you've ever seen in your life even the hobos like the beggars have a union and a stock market Right. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie is where they're like tracking the price of sausages and cigarettes and stuff like that. They're like, oh, which block do you have tonight? I'm going to watch this one. Yeah. But (laughs) I was going to say, on the bottom line, we're just looking for something effective. And if it's not the traditional avenues, well, then maybe you have to look to the alternative. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before because it's in the zeitgeist at the moment. Like the police are basically just like a different kind of gang. And the only question is like, are they legitimate or not? Um, (laughs) Right. And Lang puts that right out on the table. And he even does these great comparisons by doing the way that he does these intercuts is fascinating to me, especially because I can't pass up an opportunity to just, if I can, maybe trash D.W. Griffith a little because... (laughs) 15 years earlier, D.W. Griffith literally or supposedly invents the intercut 
like as a specifically racist thing. Like imagine you had to watch the white woman who might almost be about to be raped by a black man. And also you had to watch the Klan coming to save her and kill him at the same time. Well, we'd have to switch back and forth between those two things. <laughs> so, that's birth of a nation and that's the invention of the intercut. Yeah, I was gonna say you might want to put that in context a yeah, little bit. Yeah, no, that is that is DW Griffith figuring out how to do an intercut in Birth of a Nation. And that's why everybody thinks I mean it's not the only reason, but it's one of many reasons that everybody thinks that Birth of a Nation is such an important film cinematically, in spite of it being absolute foaming at the mouth racist garbage. Oh yeah. Yeah, when they made me watch it in film school, there was so many disclaimers, but they were like <laughs> you still need to see it. Oh, and by yeah. the way, it's like four hours long. So yeah. enjoy. Is it really? Oh my God. It's long. I mean, they were still trying to figure out what a reasonable length was. And he just, again, like all of these visionaries, he just like went to the end. He was just like straight on some Christopher Nolan shit. But, <laughs> I mean, So in 31, the point, 15 years later, in, thir- in 31, Fritz Lang is doing the intercut in a totally different way. Yeah, of course, he's doing a lot of the same stuff where the intercut is showing progress along the same timeline in two situations. But he's also doing a thematic intercut that's really important and probably obvious to our eyes today, but in his era would be really like, oh, that's clever, where he's going back and forth between the police talking about what they're going to do and the criminal organizations planning out what they're going to do. And it gives us an opportunity to sort of compare the two and perhaps consider which is going to be most effective. And it turns out that cracking down on sex workers who have no relation whatsoever to this thing, and you're just basically impeding business, is less effective than just getting the beggars to watch everybody. But then we get into the sort of threat of a police state on both ends, different kinds of police states. And of course, this is 31, two years before Hitler takes power. So that's interesting, too. Uh, Yeah, out of Germany, right? You were talking about this, uh, I think, a little bit with, oh, I'm going to butcher this name. Menel Menotant? Menel Menotant. Ah, yes, that one. Because that sets up this idea of juxtaposition, right? This was a big deal in the French era at this time and also in Asian cinema, which doesn't quite get recognized as much. But the idea of putting two things next to each other so you make the comparison in your head, like exactly like saying, oh, cops and criminals, they're not so different, are they? That seems like so commonplace now, but to do it with an edit back then is just, that's why cinema was so highbrow. And then when you look at, What's the name again? Menel Montant. Menel Montant. <laughs> when you look at that, there's so much of that within that movie. Like, you know, compare the orphanage to the river. You know, they don't say anything clearly because it's a silent movie, but yeah. we get by the juxtaposition, the consideration and the, you know, what's happening. And that was, you know, that was considered high level filmmaking, although now that's just a basic move. It's not even you know genre specific or anything they do it in tv sitcoms they do it everywhere like the idea of putting two things next to each other isn't shocking anymore but back then you know that's the entire art film that's the entire idea of expressionalism yeah Uh, i mean there's there's a few different directions you could take that i think one is that we see this in traditional haiku even i mean not just there but if we're going to go back to forms that we see in say chinese and, and japanese poetry and then into asian cinema we see these things in a lot of places not limited to but certainly including the haiku and i'm immediately 
reminded of some of those like translations we talked about, like Ezra Pound's obsession with the Chinese poets. And so we see some of that filtering into modernism. And so the sort of notion of imagism where you just say like, well, we're going to give you an image. We're not going to tell you what it means. It's not going to be symbolic necessarily, but there's just like image on image on image. T.S. Eliot does this in his concept of the objective correlative, sort of just a fancy way of talking about the image, but the image doesn't necessarily stand for something like a symbol, but it does show something that's associated with something else. By the time you get sort of through the 20s, this has fed its way into early surrealism. And so Manuel Montan is sort of then transitioning from that surrealist vocabulary into something that we might see in a horror movie. And so those surrealist influences, I think, are really obvious in the yeah, French art cinema. And um, I'm blanking on the name of the director of Manuel Montan. Kirsinoff. Yeah, Kirsinov, he'd, he'd migrated from Russia sort of during the Civil War. And so escaping out of that violence and coming to Paris as an artist, we eventually we'll, we'll look at some revolutionary Russian cinema or Soviet cinema, if you want to be proper about how what you call it, where they're very into different weird techniques of montage. They were also, because they were like roots level communists, they were really into the idea that any worker could be a filmmaker too. So they were promoting the idea of the handheld camera. And so Kirsanov edited a lot of those sequences in the camera itself. I'm not exactly clear on how that would work in the era with the technology that he had, but, but the most obvious way to do it is you shoot something really quick and then you shoot something else really quick and then you shoot something else really quick rather than cutting it together with film. You kind of had to shoot in sequence if you only yeah. had one roll of film. Yeah, that shooting sort of, in sequence, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there were some of those early handheld cameras that had other weird techniques for like moving around the film and tracking it back and tracking it forward. So you could do those double exposures and stuff like that that you see too. As far as I understand it, actually, I took a class in this at one point back when I was going to college, like all you good students out there. It's super complicated to pull it off and make it look right, but it's also kind of just re-rolling the film and shooting over it. Mm -hmm. There's not, you know, we shot this and then we get it to the right point and then we double up over top of it. I think the trickier yeah, thing right. is to just make sure you do it right the first time, both times. You know? Yeah. God, you, know, yeah you have no room for error, you know? No second choices. And speaking yeah. of shooting in sequence, I was watching an interview with Drew Barrymore. Stick with me. And she was talking about how when, say, they shot E.T., they shot it in sequence. And that might be the last movie on a major scale that was ever shot in sequence because you just can't do it nowadays because of budget. You need to nail the big final you know, blockbuster climax scene so you always shoot that one first. And then if you have to you know, cheap the budget for the beginning half, then you do less of. And this ties into Scream, which ties back around to Psycho because the Janet Lee scream gag that Drew Barrymore does where she's supposed to be the lead and she's on all the posters, you know, and they set it up to be like, she is the, and then they kill her off. It turns out that was Drew Barrymore's idea. She told Wes Craven, wouldn't it be funny if we flip things on their heads a little bit? And it's easy for her to say that now that Wes Craven's dead, but you know, apparently, this is a very recent interview. She Drew said, Barrymore yeah. is a saint. How dare you <laughs> doubt her? I would never. I would never. I'm just saying, but she says that was her idea now, and she doesn't mention Psycho once, which means, I don't know, maybe it's still just intrinsically in the zeitgeist. 
And of like, course, so I mean, it's not like she, we can't, like, we can't imagine that she doesn't know that. But just like, so the idea still sounds like a good idea. And it's still, yeah. and I remember back then, I remember my friends coming out being like, oh my God, did you, being scared to death of that movie, which once again, a movie, you look back on it, it's not the scariest movie in the world, you know. Uh, in its time, but, it was oh, what once you rip the rules, well, yeah. Once you rip the rules out from under things, that's when you know you make your audience uneasy, and then that's where the real emotional, where it sticks. You know, even when you've got uh, Randy, the film nerd, who I don't identify with at all, sitting here explaining all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> you know that those rules that he's saying now don't mean anything. And they do and they don't. Well, they they do and they don't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, go have, ahead. Oh, then you have all of your grandparents scared to shower. Yeah. 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 They don't even know yeah. what's going on. Maybe scared to work in a video store for a while. One thing I'm interested in talking about a little bit more is about fetish and or deviance in the Weimar urban subcultures that are at least alluded to in a movie like M and what we're supposed to take away from that. Is Lang's portrayal of the underworld meant as a parody or is it just like an aspect of these sort of non-realist genre conventions or, or maybe it is a little bit more real than we think it is. Is there any kind of commentary that Lang and or Harbaugh, who you might remember as the primary screenwriter from Metropolis, you know, on the one hand, this sort of like weirdo, I don't know what you want to call Lang politically, maybe a little bit of a libertarian or a little bit of a don't fuck with me, I'm weird kind of guy. And Harbaugh, who ends up being a literal Nazi, writing this movie together, like what kinds of commentary are they trying to make on the sort of sex and crime urban subcultures that they're gesturing to here. I think it's interesting in the way that it's presented because obviously the re you can see the results that we have in, you know, the example that comes to my mind in M where you get to the point he's on the floor and then they're saying, we will be your right. That's one of my favorite quotes from that movie. But then also you have to think about, yeah, they could be against it, but also they're giving space to it. They're gesturing to it in this film. So what does that mean? Is that intentionally I mean, ambiguous or are they actually against it? By showing I mean, us like the sex workers and the, and the criminals right. and stuff like that, that these are also citizens. That's a big deal in and of itself. Yeah. And yeah, he's messed up, but also you have this angle where, okay, well, this could just be how it is, and there's definitely avenues for it to be accepted, even in a smaller group or subculture. For for it to be accepted? Obviously not pedophilia, but I'm saying sex work and deviance and things like oh, okay. that. Okay, yeah. Well, I think that that's actually one of the interesting things that this movie does, that in one sense it appears to, I think that you have to, I guess, think about the person who's watching it. On the one hand, if you think of a very conservative person who maybe a couple years later ends up being a Nazi, right, watching this, it would seem to suggest a continuity between normal criminal and sex work activity and like, oh, well, if we allow this, then we also would allow for a pedophilic serial killer. 
But that's not actually what the movie says. What the movie says very directly to us is that these people are actually quite normal people with boundaries and a sense of right and wrong. And they think that this person is horrible and have even set up a criminal justice system to attempt to deal with him. Yeah, it's like the stop of the slippery slope argument, you know? You could put it it that way, yeah. If we allow sex work, if we allow gambling, if we don't throw the homeless off the street, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then what do we allow next? Child murder? And once again, the cops are inefficient, and the even the homeless people are more <laughs> organized than the cops. If the question is, what statement is it trying to make? I would say it at bare minimum, if it's not anti-authoritarian just on its face, then it's uh, at least just questioning the idea of what, say, a a more conservative type person might think. And this is all done with a German flair, which means highly organized and (laughs) perfectly arranged. (laughs) Perhaps. So here's the way that this might be complicated, though. And remember, people are working in two different directions here. Fritz Lang literally ends up leaving Germany because he's afraid that the Nazis are going to go after him. I'm not sure exactly why. I'm Perhaps just because he's an artist, perhaps because he was doing... I think that he might have been some sort of sex freak, but I'm not clear on that one. I don't know if I would call him a sex freak, but I don't know if it fit the standard times. <laughs> yeah, it was a low bar for being a sex freak in Nazi Germany. <laughs> That's interesting. It's actually interesting to think about when he's making this movie. I don't know. I don't know anything about Fritz Lang's tastes except what I've heard in generally largely fictionalized accounts. <laughs> I, I okay. think it's fair to say that whatever Fritz Lang was doing and was into both artistically and in his personal life, including his sexual life, would have been probably totally normal in Weimar Berlin and definitely questionable in Nazi Germany. Like, whatever it was, let's just say that like this was his world. So the point is he's working on this with Thea von Harbaugh, who is at the time perhaps his partner, or they may have just broken up. There may be a a fuzzy line, who knows. But she ultimately ends up later on being a Nazi, and he isn't. And we see in Metropolis them pulling in sort of two different directions, where maybe Fritz Lang is trying to make a film that's largely symbolic, or perhaps could even be interpreted as socialistic in some way. And, And Harbaugh is writing something that seems to me to be dead on fascist, right? Here, I think we have something similar going on, because if we read it as a political allegory, then the supposed opposition to the police state that we see in the criminal syndicates, particularly as personified in ultimately the character of Schranker, who ends up sort of taking charge of the trial. What we have is that supposed opposition to the police state adopts its own authoritarian tactics insofar as we're talking about total surveillance done by the beggars, right? And then ultimately an alternate extrajudicial system of courts and justice. Now it's easy for us to say like, oh, well, it's more efficient or, oh, well, this is like coming up from the bottom as the people. But also that's exactly the same thing things that the Nazis would say to excuse what they were doing. We have to double this up with a consideration of what he looks like as he's doing this. He's wearing this leather jacket, these leather gloves, and using this rhetoric where he talks about the right of survival. 
He talks about that we all, as members of this criminal syndicate, have the right to survival, and this man is impeding our right to survival, and he does not himself have the right to live. So the question of who is fit to live and who must be killed because they are unfit in this other way, and I'm not the first person to comment on this. This is a whole strain of criticism of this movie, where if we look at the kinds of language that Schrenker uses, both as he's talking to the other members of the criminal syndicate while they're tracking him down, and then in the trial itself, it is very much mirroring the kind of rhetoric that Nazis were using in that same era. So we could also read this as a sort of political allegory about the Nazis rising to power to take control and to say, well, the way that you run the state is inefficient. We have to run this in another way and get rid of the people who are doing really bad things. Right. No, and especially when you put it like, yeah, it's easy to forget that context. And some of the most beautiful films ever created, unfortunately, are Nazi propaganda films. And they started working it into the sort of zeitgeist and the public conversation pretty early. Like, uh, and you're I'm right, not so going we, so far as to say that this is a Nazi film. I'm saying that like Metropolis, it goes in two directions. Yeah. But I mean that. I mean that's uh, that statement earnestly. I can't remember her name, but she she did amazing propaganda. Lenny Riefenstahl is who you're thinking uh, of. That's the one. But, you know, there, you can't deny the beautifulness of the films. But also, so, yeah, when I say it's anti-authoritarian, it is. But they just happen to be Nazis fighting against well, the it's authority. Just, it's a question of whose authority. It's like the free speech yeah. crusaders we have these days. Go ahead, Anna. Well, I was just going to say, first of all, how did I miss that perspective? Second of all, it's such a shame that it still seems better when the people do it, even though you're recycling the same kinds of things. And I'm <laughs> glad that I know that now. I mean, again, I think it's like Metropolis. The movie doesn't know what it wants to be or what it wants to do. And it's better, in my mind, it's better than any movie that Lenny Riefenstahl could ever do because it's not sure of what it believes. Because we can read it in many different ways, that makes it more interesting and that makes it more relevant to people then and to people now and to people with all sorts of different political beliefs. I mean, we could even do an anarchist reading of this film if we want to, if we want to say that, like, maybe the justice of the streets is in a certain sense more real, more true than... Yeah, that's well, that's, that was my favorite reading of it. But I always looked more into the anti-authoritarian. But once you put it into context, it's like, yeah, it's who, who are they actually fighting against at this point and who's doing the fighting? It's still anti-authoritarian. It still carries a lot of the things we would latch on to, you know, the morals, the chutzpah of the idea of, like, the government's doing something wrong. We need to fight back. We need to take this into our hands. Just in this particular movie, you have to remember what that context is. Right. When, yeah. you know, when Jordan Peele remakes it in five years, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So if we're going to talk about Psycho a little bit more, I mean, I'm thinking more about how we're enacting and dramatizing power around gender and class. We see that in M, we see that in Psycho in a little bit of a different way. We also see questions of like the authority of money versus the authority of the police, which sort of intersects with both of those. For working from that angle, I did have a question I don't have an answer to. Does Psycho have a trans problem? 
because Hitchcock's wrong about one of two things. He's either wrong in the way he's portraying a trans individual and turning them into an angry monster, or he's wrong about the way he's portraying schizophrenia and what it actually does to someone. And at the end, they kind of tie it up nicely, like, oh, he's a crazy person. It's all just crazy mm. stuff. In a movie that's obsessed with gender and gender roles, is there a trans problem in it? I don't think so. Because a trans individual, that would mean that Norman Bates, he was born in the wrong body, but he took on a different personality, a different persona. There's still a Norman Bates that's a male, but then there's a different persona that happens to be female, like dissociative identity disorder which I think is more likely. Yeah. There's definitely a problem with schizophrenia too, because as they both know, I did some research on schizophrenia and there's actually, I think, six or seven types. Don't quote me on that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But Mm -hmm. I feel like in the handling of mental illness on general, if you're going to include it in film, you need to do your research and you need to nail it. Otherwise, it doesn't serve any purpose. And chalking it up to, oh, it's just crazy behavior is a cop-out. Well, this is also an earlier film when they figured out shell shock at this point, but it's easier to just not accept it. They didn't know that much. Right. And actually, the first use of the word schizophrenia was around the 1900 or so. Even given that, I'm skeptical to give him, well, I guess I'll give him a little bit of leeway, but reactionary looking back on this film, I'm not going to give him much wiggle room with that. I think this movie does a better job with at least not doing anything stupid in terms of any kinds of trans representation than a movie like Silence of the Lambs. I think that at the very least, Hitchcock does something that he didn't have to do at the end where he has the psychologist be like, no, no, he's not a transvestite. Right. And that's, and that's what that kind of brings this question. Yeah. He makes a point of saying that this is a psychological thing. This is not a question of Norman Bates's gender identity, nor is it a question of his sexuality. The explanation does emphasize the sexuality aspect of that question and does not really take up the concept of gender directly, which I think is very much typical of its era. But it at least does the very basic bit of being like, this is not about somebody who's trans and therefore is out of their head in some ways. This is an entirely different thing that I think that today we would call dissociative identity disorder or maybe in this era would call multiple personality disorder. Now the question of whether schizophrenia or any number of other psychological problems are dealt with correctly is another one. But I do think that it does a surprisingly good job for 1960. The question comes up, of course, because M is so ahead of its time handling mental health issues, right? You know, so to speak. Maybe. Uh, Well, I mean, it's pretty much the first time that anyone has ever said on film, hey, it's not just because this guy's having a great time out there with some kids. Heavily, heavily imply like he was born this way kind of thing. Um, And then getting back to the nature versus nurture conversation, I just have this feeling like Hitchcock has to be wrong about one of them. You know, and I'm not starting the petition. I think, you know, I think he did handle it about as well as anything. But, you know, if we're if we're calling these things into question and we're talking about them, I think it's worth pointing out that he might be right on the side of trans issues, but then wrong on the side of general mental illness 
Anna, is your objection to the use of psychology in psycho that basically the wrong terminology is used or it's explained wrong or to what extent is it wrong? The application of terminology, not just as terminology, but in this case, the depiction of that terminology. Norman Bates would be, what, DID or in the old terminology, MPD, right? Yeah, I, I actually agree with your assessment. I think DID is the better label for him, Yeah, possibly, but... But they call him schizophrenic, in, and that's a, that's a common confusion in this era. I think maybe even just using the term psycho is probably not really very responsible. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But it was the title of the book and it I mean, I don't know. It's kind of you're not really gonna be able to stop people from using sensational titles even if you want to. It doesn't seem right. I don't know to what degree the book actually goes into the true psychology of Ed Gain or how well that was understood in its era. And we could also say that there's some malpractice on Hitchcock's part in that. I don't know if anybody saw the biopic of Hitchcock that came out a few years back. Anthony Hopkins was Hitchcock. Yeah, that's the one. uh, It's in large part about his relationship with his wife, but via the process through which they developed and produced the concept of psycho. And one thing that's dramatized in this movie and that I've heard before in terms of movie lore, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt, who knows how true it is. I'm sure it's true to some extent, but the question of how true it is is another issue, is that supposedly in order to prevent any spoilers, Hitchcock dropped down some absurd amount of his budget to just have the copies of the book, as it was in hardcover at the time, just bought so nobody would be reading the book and so nobody would understand like what to expect wow yeah talk about you can do anything jesus yeah that puts the earlier conversation into context yeah that's uh man remind me the next movie i make (laughs) buy up all the books so no one has any idea what i'm about to do (laughs) that seems counterintuitive but i guess Whatever. What it seems to me is like almost impossible, like in an era in which all these books would be distributed to like a bajillion different tiny mom and pop bookstores all over the country. How could one even actually do such a thing? Political organizations will do that with the intent to manipulate numbers in the like New York Times bestseller list. So you'll see this with whenever some right wing talking head shitbag puts out a book, a bajillion copies sell because all these clubs buy up copies of it. But it's basically just the Republican political slush money fund just making sure that they ping it on the New York Times bestseller list. So you can do this sort of a thing. It can be done. But the question of how effective it is in 1960 is, I think, a legitimate point of debate that, like, you could certainly try to do it. You could certainly almost do it, but you could never absolutely do it because I'm sure that there are going to be a few copies kicking around in every little town all over the country because they already had their copies and you can't possibly have some lackey call up every single bookstore. Was it that popular of a book? Like, are we talking about the Da Vinci Code of its era? Like, he needed to get it off the shelves before the ending was ruined? I or? think that 
I mean, I think that it must have made a splash because it would have gotten on his radar, you know. My understanding is that it was selling pretty well and then, you know, he, in a certain sense, pulled the rug out from under it. The long end of this point is that by doing such a thing, it is sort of an act of artistic malpractice in that you're then rewriting the whole thing to whatever your thing you're going to do is. And we already talked about how, you know, it's based on the Ed Gain killings. So Hitchcock is already going way out of his way to like tone it down and change a lot of the details to make it something that would be more filmable in 1960, even breaking code, right? Uh, Even breaking code, you're going to have to tone it down pretty significantly. (laughs) To basically say that, well, I'm the one who's going to tell this story means that you're going to inevitably be changing the presentation of psychosis from something that might be a little bit more serious to something that's a little bit less. Here we go. Psycho is a 1959 horror novel by American writer Robert Block. The novel tells the story of Norman Bates. So it is a novel, a horror novel, and yes, of course, inspired by the Ed Gain killings, but it's not, of course, a nonfiction work. I'm not sure that the psycho novel is actually, you know, better on these issues. It's probably just as bad, if not worse, because it's a novel, so therefore longer. I like that it's listed as a horror novel, because I don't entirely know that psycho given modern standards, and M, given modern standards, there's a debate to say that these are not horror movies. Like, Psycho might be the definition of a psychological thriller, no pun intended, right? And then M, I think we feel the terror of the moment because it's very intense, it's very claustrophobic, but depending on how you kind of couch the definition because it's kind of an inherently terrifying movie, I think M does kind of fall into that genre, but I'd be interested to hear reasons, like concrete, this is why M is a horror movie. Because feeling and tone kind of put it in a different category. I hate psychological horror movies, I'm just gonna say that, but some of my favorite movies are psychological horror, and they're the exceptions that prove the rule, right? So to define psychological horror as a horror movie where you're afraid even though nothing's happening. So you get like a movie like The Shining, which is the greatest, but there's so many long stretches where there's literally nothing happening. It's just your own psychological horror. Because if you make the, uh, let's say, the org chart of horror, (laughs) right? Like there's horror and then there's body horror and psychological horror and you work your way down from those two different genres. M gives me a lot of those feelings and you feel like the sort of claustrophobia and the not say the suspense you would feel because Hitchcock was all suspense, right? Not necessarily terror, although Psycho kind of breaks with that a little bit. But just some concrete reasons why like M as horror movie. I would would, uh, love to hear what anyone else is thinking. Horror is always a moving target. All genres are, and I think that part of the problem of genre is we can never really quite define it, and people who are very formalist always want to define it. I'm tempted to think that you're the kind of person who always wants to define it, but I think that genres are always going to be very squishy, and something like horror especially so, because it's a genre that's defined based on how it makes us feel, so that is very specific to a time and sometimes even a place. Anna, do you have a sense of what makes a horror film? I was under the impression that maybe you were a little bit of a horror buff, but I'm not sure. 
I mean, in the slightest, there's a lot in film. You know, there's different sections of film that I like, and horror is one of them. But I'm thinking more about, I'm tempted to say you know it when you see it, but then again, you have all the different subsets of what that is. With M, I was more thinking about, okay, well, you see it here, and then you can see how it kind of morphs through time. Maybe not even in the same category, but and then you get to a movie like Hereditary, and I think that's, I guess that was interesting to me, but that's obviously a tangent. In, in the, that's a clear horror movie, that one. Yeah, <laughs> that one. right. <laughs> but so, I, yeah. Like when we're doing supernatural horror, we're doing something totally different. And I, I'm not saying that they're not both horror, I'm just saying it's like a full separate subset. Matt, you were saying that it was like body horror, psychological horror, and then I'd even say there's a third, which is supernatural horror. And they're Fair all enough. related in various ways. And they and they dance around with each other too. Yeah, quite a bit. It's like often you said. a question of which is it going to be. Right. Well, and then that's one of the amazing things about Hereditary because about halfway through, past the Janet Lee twist, yeah. <laughs> which just happens to feature a very small child this time. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it, I know we haven't had much time to talk about it, but they did the psycho thing. They essentially promoted it as this is a the omen with a tiny girl uh-huh. and then we all know how that turned out so, <laughs> and then there's the big switch in the middle so when you're talking about m i think the parts that scare me the parts that would make it fall under horror are the idea that like these mobs can spring up or like the idea that the cops are ineffective and we can create a kangaroo court and just sort of decide the fate of another person. Like it's sort of part of a larger, and especially when you put it in German context, right? It's part of this larger, we're all just a cog in the machine and all of these movies from say the French one again. <laughs> all the way up to hereditary are sort of about your life isn't in your own control. That, that is the premise uh, of that, surrealism. That is the premise that, of like the subconscious, yes, right? But it's also when you put it in a dark context, it's terrifying. Yeah. You know? And so if, if we're trying to define M as a horror movie, I don't think that's a bad place to start because if the mob's coming for you, the mob's coming for you. You're either part of the mob or you're not. You're either a cop or you're either a hooker or you're a this or you're a that. You know, you're just where you're at and this is what's happening. You know, as Peter Lorre's weeping on the, quote, witness stand, <laughs> right? You know, what is there to be done? And then very much when you get all the way down the line to hereditary, this was all put into place way before. Like potentially you know, centuries ago. Yeah. And then, and then you want to talk about misdiagnosing schizophrenia, that, then we can backtrack it a little bit to Psycho. Because that early line about my brother killed himself because my – and he said my mom was trying to put voices in my head. No, no. <laughs> trying no, to put, my, he kept trying to put people inside of him. Yeah, kept trying, trying to put trying, people inside of him. <laughs> but no, Hereditary is great because, once again, it flips the genre conventions like we were saying earlier. What happens when the crazy psychic is – not only right, she's a part of it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Back to what you were saying. Unfortunately, some of the stupidest things that we say are the most true. You know. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
it's terrifying, but it's such a good second watch because if the conventions they play with in M are what side are you on and the conventions they play with in Psycho are, you know, what type of movie is this and what are the morality rules, the Hays Code, etc. Then the things they play with in Hereditary are like, what if all the terrible shit's right? And then that just brings, once again, once the rules are gone, then your audience is, I don't care if you do it with a painting, a song, a short story, whatever. Once you remove the rules, your audience is in like a weird place. And once you have them on that edge, you know, that's, well, either you fail or go for the kill. I'm a big fan of the idea that Art really boils down to one thing, no matter what format or media. You create an expectation, and then you either meet it or subvert it. Right, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And there are certainly four movies that really hit that about Mm -hmm. as hard as possible. But it wouldn't work if they didn't already sort of have the genre mastered. Did you happen to see Midsommar? This is just a random... I never actually saw it. I know that a lot of people have been into that. Anna? No, I know it's on Amazon, and this will sound like I'm so fake, but it's actually been on my watch list for a while. Oh, it's... No, I understand. It's incredibly real. No, it's absolutely... So here's the thing. Hereditary is uh, Ari Aster's first feature length. Knocks it out of the park. Clearly knows the three movies we've been talking about. Study of the genre, student of the art form. And then he makes Midsommar because Hereditary is so great that a studio is like, do whatever you want. And so he makes like a three-hour, no spoilers for anyone since, you know. And that he knocks out of the park as well. You know what his next movie is going to be? He said this in an interview recently. Of course, it's a little shut down because of global pandemic. But his next movie... Once your first movie is hereditary and your second movie is Midsommar, your third movie gets to be whatever the fuck you want. It's going to be, as he described, the only thing anyone knows, a four-hour, quote, zonky nightmare comedy. I don't even know what that means. I have no idea, but guess who's going to be the first person in line to see it? (laughs) Four-hour zonky nightmare comedy. So if this is all a conversation of what's leading up to whatever, apparently it all leads to a four-hour zonky nightmare comedy. (laughs) I just hope, I mean, I've obviously only seen Hereditary, but I hope he follows it up with the same caliber that he has already done. I guess Midsommar's a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, everybody has been saying great things about it for sure. And I think that if we're going to leave with one thought, it's that obviously all of these films are of their time. That's really true of any work, but I think it's especially true in genre works because they have to tap into the zeitgeist, if you will. You know, if we looked at those 1920s movies, we talked about some of what Scott Poole talks about in his monograph where he sees body horror coming directly out of the First World War. We see a clear shift here in German expressionism to something that's quite different and more psychological, but also more procedural. So on the one hand, a question of like, what does the state do? And on the other hand, a question of like, what types of people can be subject to what kinds of jurisdictions. And those questions are haunting, of course, the rise of authoritarianism. 
1960 with Psycho, we get this sort of more American, again, if you will, white bread version of the same concept done differently, obviously, and filtered through two more decades of movies. But we get to this point of, well, <laughs> you say that the nuclear family is all that great. Well, what does, what does that mean anyway? You say that capitalism is where it's at. Well, what does that mean anyway? What does that mean for the woman who's, you know, working in the front desk of this bank? And like, no shit, she's going to take the money. God bless her for taking the money, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, that's the easiest part of the whole movie to get on board with, you know? <laughs> And then if you uh, didn't like it, she's even ready to give it back. <laughs> yeah, she's even ready to give it back. I mean, uh, to a certain extent, we get something there that would code to future generations as almost like perfect victim in the true crime sense of like, you can't say that this woman deserved it. She was trying to do the right thing, which amusingly in the sense of its era would have actually very much been moving in the other direction that she'd done something wrong at least by the Hayes Code she'd done something wrong and is being punished you know so we get all kinds of very intentional contortions on that that then lead us to this concept of yes the psychological horror or the psychological thriller as we want to define it that then becomes the standard for bajillions of other true crime inflected things all the way to the present day um but then, you know, we have this third stream with the supernatural. In something like Hereditary, I see, not unlike The Witch, though in a very different way, but I do want to talk about The Witch. I want to do a, an episode on Hereditary and The Witch together, honestly. Yes. But Throw Midsummer in there and then give me a call. But in both of them, we get this sense that I think is very specific to our time and place in the 21st century, or if you will, in Trump, Trump's America, right? Where it turns out the conspiracies are all true. It turns out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it turns right. out that like everyone was out to get you all along and and like the, we get this actually in a really awesome way in, in even a 90s movie like 12 Monkeys too, where it's like the crazy dude ranting on the street was actually right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a lot more that we can unpack here. And uh, Matt, I hope that we're going to have a chance to have you back in the future for either the aforementioned episode <laughs> or maybe if we get to Candyman or... How is Candyman still better than I remember it? I watch it Candyman once a year. Candyman is always the best movie time. you've ever watched. Oh, so good. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is for another episode. Research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Matt Wise. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. in today's episode is Sheriff Fernandez and Cardio's album Local Solo.
Make sure to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tee Public merch and our Patreon. Frank Fuchile and Anna Wendorf both have poems that will be published in this upcoming issue of Locust Review, so keep an eye out for both of their work. And make sure to check out Matt's poetry collection titled Everything is Ed Wood. We'll see you next time for another episode of The Pointless Century. <laughs>